Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please open up your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Romans. We're going to pick back up again in our study. Through Romans, we are here in this greatest of chapters ever penned. And we're coming to the conclusion of this chapter. In fact, the verse that we're going to pick up on this morning, verse 31 of the 8th chapter, is the beginning of the last section of Romans 8. Romans 8 has one great theme that Paul opens up the chapter and states in verse 1, and then down through the chapter in several subsections, he validates and affirms and proves the truth. The truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're coming to the end of this chapter, chapter intended to build into the sons and daughters of God the security of their salvation. I'm going to pick up verse 31 and I'm, I'm going to read down through. I'll just read 31 and 32, I guess, Romans 8. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Paul has been writing about really one key doctrine, one key truth, the truth of the gospel. He opened up in chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 with that truth. It's a truth about the righteousness of God. His big truth, his thesis for the entire letter is to tell us is to teach and explain how the very righteousness of God comes to an individual person so that they actually become the righteousness of God. And what he states 
in chapter 1 in that thesis statement is that the only way the righteousness of God can come to a person is through faith. Specifically, through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then what he begins to unfold following that thesis statement is the proving of that. The facts, the examples, the logical deductions drawn from those facts and examples to show that the righteousness of God can and does come to those and only to those and always to those who put their faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in the first eight chapters of this letter, there's 16 chapters, we have the doctrinal section of the letter. It is where Paul is stating and proving and working out in detail what the doctrine is. What follows in the rest of the book is really something else. In 9, 10, and 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11, what Paul does is he then takes a case in point and he says, let's talk about Israel specifically and see how the doctrine of justification by faith alone works itself out in that specific nation. And then chapters 12 to chapter 16 is the practical application of it. How then should we live if we have become the righteousness of God? So, the point being what we're doing at the end of chapter 8 is we are concluding this great doctrinal treaty the fullest, most comprehensive, complete doctrinal treaty on salvation in all of Scripture. And so what Paul does as he comes to the end of this great doctrinal treatment is he makes this sweeping statement in verse 31. And he writes, What then shall we say to these things. You see, he's coming to the conclusion and he asks the question based upon all that we have looked at in the last eight chapters. Where should we arrive at? What should we say based upon these truths? And then to answer his question, here's what he does. He throws out five questions. Almost defiantly, he throws out five questions to say, Who can answer these questions? Or to say, No one can answer these questions. They are impossible questions. 
For example, if God is for us, who can be against us? First question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Next question, who is to condemn or who can condemn? Next question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You see, those are impossible questions. In other words, the answer is no one. The answer is, it cannot be done. Paul defiantly says, before all of humanity and before all the demonic forces of heaven, who could possibly do this? And he uses that tactic to make his great crescendo of the doctrine of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Paul does a lot. We've seen it consistently in his letters. He starts by stating a truth, a great propositional statement, a big, great, sweeping truth. And then what he does is he considers the objections to the truth. He knows what people are thinking in their minds. He's heard what they've said about his gospel presentation of salvation by faith alone. And so he puts those objections on the table, makes them explicit, and then he follows by responding to those objections. And that is exactly what he's doing here. He's laid out the great propositional truth. Salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's how you can get the righteousness of God. And then he asks a series of questions. Questions that we listen closely, we can hear within them concerns or objections And then he answers those objections to prove the point that he has been making. We're going to look at how he does that in these last few verses of the 8th chapter of Romans. Again, here are the questions. It all starts with the great statement, what then shall we say to these things? And then come the questions. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Number two, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Number three, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Number four, who is to condemn? Number five, who shall separate us from the love of God? I preached I believe it was six messages on Romans 
8, 28 to 30, the three verses previous to the verse that we're looking at today. And in that mini-series, the title of that entire series was this, Salvation is All of God. If Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 scream anything, it screams that truth, salvation is all of God. Thereby proving the great contention, the great statement of the first verse of the 8th chapter of Romans, that if you are in Christ, you cannot be condemned. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. You've moved out of the place of condemnation eternally. Why? Because salvation isn't contingent upon you and what you do. It's contingent upon God and who He is and what He's done through His Son and how He has chosen, elected, predestined, called, justified, and will glorify each one that He calls to Himself. So Paul continues proving the truth that our salvation is secure by making this statement, who can be against us if God is for us? Who could possibly be against us if God is for us? Do we have any forces against us? Yes, no. Oh, yes, we do. Matter of fact, the Bible, the Bible lists them in many locations. Powerful forces. Principalities. Demonic forces. And if we were left to ourselves against them, the battle would be over before it started. But we're not. Listen just to one author's pen. King David. Psalms 23.4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're rotting your staff. They comfort me. Psalms 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you hear the answer to the question if God is for us, who can be against us? Psalms 27.3 Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Psalms 56.11 In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalms 3.6 I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. How about the pen of Isaiah? 
Let me ask the question of Paul again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to what Isaiah said. To whom, speaking for God, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Isaiah 46.5. And then five verses later, My counsel shall stand, says God, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says through Isaiah's pen, I will accomplish all my purpose. What are the purposes that Paul has been writing about in the 8th chapter of Romans, specifically a few verses earlier? The purpose that he was writing about is his purpose to save utterly everyone he saves initially. You hear that? Everyone, everyone that he foreknew, he predestined and those he predestined, he called to himself effectually. And everyone he calls, he justifies. And everyone he justifies, he glorifies. That's the statement of Romans 8, 28 and 29 and 30. That's the purposes of God. You see, everyone that has been, quote, called according to his purpose. That's the purpose of salvation toward an individual. And Isaiah writes, speaking for God, I will accomplish all of my purpose. You see, what should... What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? The point that Paul is making is that no one can be against us when God is for us. Yes, we have many against us. Sons and daughters of God have a great adversary who is seeking to make war on them and does assail them. But the point in fact, is this. If God is for you, He is going to win the day with you. He is not going to leave you defeated and abandoned and destroyed. He is going to take you all the way to glory. That's the point of Romans chapter 8. You see, as we begin the previous section, Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, as I was preaching through that, I introduced this doctrine called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Meaning that the saints, the children, the sons and the daughters of God that he foreknew and predestined and called according to his purpose and that he justifies and that he will glorify, that they will preserve, be preserved all the way to the end and throughout all of eternity. So in keeping with the way Paul is writing this, let me say to you.
if God is for you, who can be against you? Let me say it to you another way. Do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? If God is for you, do you believe that nothing against you will ultimately succeed? It cannot. It cannot. That's the point from the pen of the great apostle. What I want to do now is we kind of come to the last part of the message this morning. I want to just jump into verse 32. We're going to spend next Sunday on verse 32 as well. But I want to just make a general statement, a general point about verse 32, and then what we'll do next Sunday as we will look at the specific details of the verse. Let me read it for you. I'm just going to start with verse 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see, I think what Paul is asking here, what the focal point of his question here. in verse 32, is related to the love of God. He says it specifically down in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? But he clearly is referring to the love of God here. Because he's talking about the death of the Son here. And what is the death of the Son? It is the greatest demonstration of the love of God of human history, past, present, and future. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated His own love for us in this. The great demonstration, the perfect, the full and complete demonstration of the love of God toward those who are His and those He will call to Himself. The demonstration of that is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does here in verse 32 is he asks the question, stating it like this, if God has given you His Son...
How will He not also with the Son graciously give you all things? What we have here in this statement, we're going to unpack it in detail next Sunday, but what we have here is a great statement about the doctrine of the atonement. In fact, in this one verse, Romans 8.32, we have several of the critical doctrines of Scripture included in Romans 8.32. And the centerpiece is the doctrine of the atonement. And what I want to do as we close this is I just want to make this general statement, bring out this general truth related to the doctrine of the the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement is central to your salvation. Without it, you're not saved. So I'm going to explain some things about that. And this morning, there's one key lesson that you need to understand, that Paul is wanting you to understand. It's the whole hinge point of his argument here in the 32nd verse. Paul wrote that God, what, did not spare His own Son, That says it from the negative side. And then he says it from the positive side. But gave him up for us all. What Paul is telling us is this. That the cross of Jesus is the work of the Father. The cross of Jesus Christ is the work of God the Father. You need to understand that truth if you are going to understand the atonement. And you need to understand that truth if you are going to understand the argument Paul is making in verse 32. He hinges the argument on that understanding that the cross of Jesus, the death of the Son, the sacrifice of the Holy One was the work of the eternal Holy Father. You see, I'll show it to you from the negative side or the false side. Some say, some say that the work of the cross was the work essentially of wicked men. Wicked men who were jealous, the Pharisees. Wicked men who didn't have the courage to stand up for right Pontius Pilate. Wicked men that forsook and betrayed 
Jesus, Judas Iscariot, you know, wicked men. And so those that look at the cross as the work of wicked men see it as the greatest tragedy of history. That's not a biblical understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, that is radically different than the truth of Scripture. Some see that the cross of Jesus Christ is the work of Satan and his demonic forces. That he is the malevolent one. He is the wicked, evil one that is the prince of the power of the air. And yes, men did it, but it was Satan that led them and his forces that led them and influenced them That he was attacking Jesus from the very beginning and he pursued him through his life and finally led wicked men under his control to crucify the Holy Son. That's not the understanding of Scripture. Let me read you the right conclusion. Several verses here. Isaiah 53.4 Surely, He, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah, the prophet, 700 years before the death of the Holy Son, looked down through history with the inspired prophetic eyes and prophetic pen and said that the Holy Son would be smitten and afflicted by the Father. Isaiah 53.6 All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on his Son, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Who did it? The Lord, the God, the Father. Was God passive in the cross as wicked men had their way? Was God Passive as Satan led wicked men toward his own designs? No. The truth of Scripture is that God was active. God was proactive. God was actually the great author of and initiator of the cross. Now, I know that that is, if you have never heard that before, that is a shocking, disturbing truth. As a matter of fact, years ago, preaching on that theme, I'm pretty confident I had a family leave the church because I stated that. I'm certainly not wanting to drive people out of the church. 
But this is a radically important truth for you to understand. It is really the essence of the atonement, that which saves you. It is the foundation for your security as a believer. Paul identifies that in verse 32. I'll show you that in a minute. Look at Acts 2.23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4, 26-28, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Understand what that's saying right there, right? Everybody rose up against Jesus. The kings of the earth, the rulers gathered together. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So this is a prayer being offered to God. This is believers in Acts 4 praying to God and they're saying, man, the kings of the earth set themselves up against Jesus. They gathered together against Him. Pontius Pilate did. Herod did. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes. But then look how he ends the verse in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, the death of the Son was the predestined plan of the Father. The Father was not passive. The Father was the key actor. It was according to His definite plan and purpose. It was the Father ultimately who brought about the death of the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God, He, God, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. How active the Father is. It was the Father who made Jesus to be our sin. So that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, there it is again. The righteousness of God becomes ours through faith in Jesus. You see, folks, the very centerpiece of the evangelical story is the proclamation to the effect that it was God who acted at Calvary. It was God the Father who acted at Calvary. And so here's Paul's point. In Romans 8.32, let me read it again. 
First the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear the hinge point? Paul says, it was God the Father who gave up the Son for you. It was God the Father who actively, proactively was involved in giving the perfect Holy Son for you. And if He did that for us while we were sinners... What's He going to do now that He saved us? And the point Paul is making is, if He gave you the greatest, then following that, He's certainly going to give you the lesser. If He's already given you the greater, the greater becomes the guarantee that He'll give you the lesser. That's the argument of Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And the only way that argument makes sense and has its power and its force is that if you understand that God the Father was the one who afflicted and smote the Son didn't spare Him, but instead delivered Him up. And Paul says, if that's the way God loves you, if that's the depth of the love of God for you, then is there anything any one, any circumstance that could change the love of God toward you? And his answer is absolutely no. And the proof of the answer is just look back to the cross. Look back to the cross. There, for a vile, wicked, rebellious enemy of God, the Holy Son was delivered up to death for that person, for that wicked, vile enemy. And if God did that, Is there any possible way that He will not do all of the other lesser promises as well? You see, really this is an expansion upon Romans 8.28. And that is that all things work for the good of those who love God who have been called according to His purpose. Because everyone He's called according to His purpose, He's for And if God is for them, who can be against them? So the simple answer is this, that what happened at Calvary was the action of the Holy God. And that fact proves that because He did that for you, if you're His son or daughter, 
you can be guaranteed that nothing is going to change in His love for you. And nothing can rise up against you that will defeat that kind of love. Nothing. Would you please stand? Father, I just, I feel, Lord, so inadequate trying to talk about a subject like that. But I certainly know it has nothing to do with me and my adequacy. It has to do with you and your truth and your spirit. And so I'm, I'm just asking you, to let that truth land and go deep into the hearts of those who are here. Father, for those who are not saved, who are not justified, those who do not have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, I pray that you would help them by the the revelation of your spirit as the truth has been spoken to to see. Open their blind eyes, God. Regenerate them so they can understand the truth that Jesus Christ is the very Son of the living God who left heaven to come and offer a perfect life to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So that if they put their trust in Him and Him only, then the righteousness of God can be theirs, will be theirs, will undefeatably be theirs. For if God is for us, who can be against us. Thank you, God, for that truth and for, Lord, the security to those that are believers in here. Help them to see the depth of the security that is in the fact that it was the Father who gave the Son to save those He would call according to His purpose. And that those He calls, He justifies. And that everyone that He justifies, He glorifies. Thank You. It's committed to You in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.